But that same passion that I had to be an Olympic athlete and to be a world championship is the same passion now that I drive in this work here at um, the Columbus Servant League. A passionate advocate for social justice and racial equity, Stephanie Hightower has emerged as one of our community's most respective change agent. She stepped in as the first female president of your Columbus Urban League in nearly a century of existence. Now in her 10th year at CUL, Stephanie moved this 102-year-old organization to a new level of influence and effectiveness, touching almost 40,000 people a year with an array of proven economic mobility initiatives, bringing the National Urban League Conference to Columbus, transforming an abandoned building into an economic hub in the heart of the King Lincoln District, and much more. Resolving never to waste a crisis, Stephanie met the economic health and racism challenge of 2020 with courage and dogged determination. She revised delivery systems, created online tools, redeployed her team to work remotely, and focused on recovery issues, channeling more than $5 million in new revenue to offer relief and hope to approximately 70,000 people, including 4,000 jeopardized Black entrepreneurs and 9,000 families fighting homelessness. Stephanie has always pursued excellence for herself and for others. An Olympic athlete, she set American and world records and now continues serving as the leader in world athletics. She currently chairs the World Athletics Gender Leadership Task Force and is a member of WA Human Rights Working Group, a two-term member and, and former board president of Columbus City Schools. Educational improvement remains her passion. She also serves on the board of Celebrate One and the Columbus Zoo. Well, we are here today with Stephanie Hightower. Stephanie, thanks for joining me on the Gravity Podcast. Thank you. I feel important being on this, this, this podcast today. Well, it's funny because um, I'm honored to have you. I think maybe we both have some mutual respect, but I've always admired you and um, just kind of not just what you've done, but your way of being. You've got a great way of being. It's fun to be around you. We, we laugh and, and uh, you know, I, I'm just happy to have a chance to do this with you today. Thank you, Brett. So we're going to start at the very beginning. Tell me a little bit about early childhood, your kind of family upbringing, where you're from, a little bit about your parents. Give me kind of the, the early days of Stephanie. Oh, well, you know what? And I'm glad that I, I did take an, uh, a chance last night to even think through that because I knew we were going to start to start from there. Yeah. Most people, or for those of you who may not have, uh, know a lot about my history since I haven't been in the news as much, you know, when you're an athlete, they usually talk about your, you know, where you came from, you know, your um, earlier accomplishments. So uh, most people don't know that uh, my father was in the military uh, for um, 30 years. And so I am what we used to dub as a military brat. And um, so we were able to travel um, pretty much to about three states um, here in the U.S. And then we lived in Germany. Uh, my dad had uh, three tours in Germany, but we were there um, for two of those tours. And so my family, believe it or not, uh, is from the Warren-Youngstown area. My uh, parents both were born and raised in Warren, Ohio. Uh, many people don't know, but there are a lot in the sports world know uh, that my uncle is uh, Paul Warfield, who uh, was uh, a Cleveland Brown and a Miami Dolphins 
professional football player. It's my mother's brother and uh, an Ohio State um, alum as well. And so um, we traveled, as I said, my dad um, uh, was a military veteran. Um, he served in uh, Vietnam as well as uh, in Korea. And so when he was in Vietnam or Korea, we always moved back to Warren, Ohio um, until he came home. And then we spent time in Maryland, spent uh, a lot of time in Kentucky because he was a tanker. And uh, we spent time, uh, uh, a little bit of time uh, in uh, D.C. Uh, but primarily I grew up in Kentucky because of his specialty. And so really um, had an opportunity at, at that time um, in the 60s during the civil rights era, living in um, not the deep South, but living in the South and really having an experience around, even though we were in the military and we all lived on military installations and um, had come from a lot of different backgrounds, um, that was probably my first real experiences um, dealing with racism, you know, having people on a regular basis called you the N-word. But the difference in the South than in the North is that at least folks in the South who are racist, they let you know and they're unapologetic about it. Mm. But in the North, there's always this undercurrent, you know, mm -hmm. this, this mm -hmm. covert way of how racism sort of reveals itself. So mm -hmm. had an opportunity to, like I said, travel with my dad, spent a lot of time in Kentucky. When I was growing up, I always thought I was going to be a ballerina. But when we were, uh, when I was in the sixth grade, seventh grade in uh, Bad Toast, Germany, uh, we had one of those Olympic days at school. And that was the first time that I realized that I could outrun the boys. Mm. And uh, by the time we then moved back to um, the U.S., back to Fort Knox, Kentucky, my freshman year in high school, they their girls track team was a state champion. Mm. And so everybody wanted to be um on the girls track team. So between cheerleading and track, uh, that's where I started my career at Fort Knox High School, mm -hmm. um, running Stephanie, track. Stephanie, let me just pause you for there for a second before we get too far into um, the track and, and the high school part. I want to back up a little bit to your parents and you know, kind of what it was like as a child to, to be moving around to you know, be um, have a father that's in the military. I mean, you know, the Vietnam War. I mean, there's a lot there. I would imagine for him. I don't know what your experience was like. How aware you were of kind of what was going on during the war. And then you know, th this part about the you know South and the racism and being called the N word. I I'm, I really do want to understand like at what point in your life you know, you start to kind of experience that and have some sense of awareness around like what's happening. I don't know if, if that's because, you know, if, if it was normalized at all for you because you were just in that kind of world, you know, how your parents handled it. I'm very curious about kind of all of that in that kind of young period of your life. You know, Brett, that's that's uh, great. Those are, are really great points to to sort of how do we unpack that a, a little bit more? So, you know, to give you some context, my parents that I lost, um, uh, unfortunately, last November had been married for 60, 63 years and um, I lost them two weeks apart last year. So I'm still very, very, very tender um, yeah. when it comes to talking about them. 
Um, But um, uh, my parents uh, married and um, my father whisked her off to Germany. And so they they had that sort of that international flair. But then they came back to the States and my mother had an opportunity to, you know, dine, you know, with, you know, with 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 people in Germany, white and black people just mingled together. But then you come back to the United States and, you know, it's just like when Jesse Owens came back from the Olympics after being a hero under Hitler. You still come back to the United States and you deal with the racism that exists um, in our in our country. You know, I remember the day when John F. Kennedy was shot because I, I remember being upstairs in my bedroom and my mother, the scream was excruciating. You would have thought that she was shot. Um, I'll never mm-hmm. forget that day. And me and my brother ran downstairs out of our rooms and she you know, said that President Kennedy you know, had been shot. That was probably my first real awakening of, of understanding civil rights and what was happening at the time because of his position as it related to that. And then when MLK was shot, I remember our house just like shut down. And that was my second awakening to the civil rights movement. And But I have to say the, the one thing that my parents did do was they, you know, we we didn't have a sense that all white people are bad or that uh, that that racism, that that was a topic of discussion that that we have to have now with our children, like what I have to have with my 30 year old son about worrying about police and, and 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 being a black man. We didn't have those kinds of conversations. But to your point, Brett, because racism, especially in Kentucky, it was normalized. You knew your place. You know, I can still remember going to Warren, Ohio and going to, y'all don't know anything about Kresge's. You too young to even know about what a Kresge's <laughs> is, but going into Kresge's and sitting out the counter and not being able to sit at, but sit in the back side of the counter. And my grandmother having to explain to me, you know, why you have to sit back here at the, at the back of the counter. Or, what did you know, that sound like? Well, what was the explanation? That just, I mean, you know, my grandmother was just really, you know, black people were not allowed to sit up there. And uh-huh. I grew up in an era or time when you didn't ask your parents why. You understand what I'm saying? You didn't. Uh-huh. If, your, if your parents said you can't do X, Y, Z, you didn't ask why. And um, so I think part of my family's um, rationale for that was that they didn't want to have to explain the pain around racism to us yeah. as children. But how do we just shield them as much as we can from it? And that's, you know, because I, I used to go back and forth with my parents and, and I answered uncles, but like, why didn't you really just tell us? But it was uh-huh. more of trying to shield us that we, we did have to normalize it because if we didn't or if they didn't, you had then those black people who were rebellious and who then ended up, you know, my grandfather was born in Kentucky. You know, he saw men being lynched as well as my grandmother lived in Tennessee. They saw family members being lynched. And so what you didn't want to do was to create a scene so that then there was the possibility that you would be in some kind of bad situation. So they just, yeah. they really are, both of our families, Warfields and Hightowers, they really did a really good job 
of shielding us. Um, and it wasn't until we really became high school age, I think then we began to really understand what that meant, what racism mm-hmm. really was about. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I can I can think back now when I rewind and we, you know, we talk about that trauma that black people have incurred over the years mm-hmm. and how we've internalized it. And I can I can think back now when I was in elementary school, you know, by you know, for us, when somebody called me the N-word, that gave me a license to be a scrapper, right? And I was a scrapper when I was when I was a kid, right? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. my father was, all right, nobody's allowed to use the N-word, so you're allowed to fight. So if mm. they sent me home for fighting, all I had to do was tell my dad someone called me the N-word today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, <laughs> a lot mm-hmm. of folks probably, he's in the military. And so mm-hmm. he wanted to know, did you win? He wanted to know, did uh-huh. you get the best of them? Uh-huh. Um because again, when they when people did it down there, it was it, it was a part of the culture. You know, that's mm-hmm. what we know. People said at home, we knew that when they said it back to us, it was just part of it. So we did normalize it, which is really mm-hmm. unfortunate. So yeah, so so that was sort of living in the South. Um, uh, I graduated from high school in Louisville, Kentucky, and then I came north to the Ohio State University, and that was because. Um, I was trying to become a Tennessee Tiger Bell with the legendary uh, Ed Temple. I have been state high school champion for four years in Kentucky in the hurdles and 100 meters and the 200 meters. And my idol was Wilma Rudolph. And so I wanted to be a Tiger Bell like her. And so Mr. Temple said, nope, you're too slow, which he re- later recanted like 30 years later. He apologized to me. And that meant more the world to me than anything in the world for Mr. Temple to say I made a mistake um, and I didn't recruit you. Uh, But my uncle wanted me to come to Ohio State. Mm. And so I'll never forget, I was still waffling because the University of Kentucky was recruiting me then. Ohio State had just implemented Title IX. For those of you youngins who don't know what Title IX is, go get on your phones and go pull it up (laughs) and Google it. And mm-hmm. I'll never forget, um, I was waffling. And so he had Woody Hayes call me. And mm. um, he, uh, Woody Hayes called and said, Stephanie, I'm pretty sure, you know, you need to be a Buckeye like your uncle. And so when, uh-huh. Woody, Hayes, when Woody Hayes calls you and says that you're going to be a Buckeye like your uncle, you're going to be a Buckeye like, like, that's, like your uncle. That's a great story. Um, amazing. Now, let, let me back you up a little bit. And, and I want to understand kind of, how a track comes into your life. You know, you, you said you had an interest, interest in the ballet and then, you know, you ended up cheerleading in track. What, you just realized you were fast? Did you, you know, like, tell me more, like, what do you remember when you first kind of got into it that like felt, you know, like this is something not only am I good at, but I like, I want to do, you know, were, were your parents encouraging you? Kind of tell me a little bit more about like how you got into this and what it was like. So, you know, my, my parents, they always encouraged us to do everything. I remember we lived in Germany and I had decided I wanted to be an ice skater, right? That was my first one, being an ice skater. So mm-hmm. putting me out there, ice skating lessons, I had these little skinny ankles and I couldn't stand up on a pair of ice skates if it, there's no way I could do it. And so my father was one of those that once you start something, you have to finish and so it was like two months of just hell, me going out, standing on the side of an ice rink every, every, you know, twice a week, whenever I was going in. 
And so then, you know, ballerina. And so I was in ballet and tap. But um, you have to remember, this was, you know, back in uh, the 60s. And you didn't really have a lot of role models. You didn't have black ballerinas, you know, Mm -hmm. like you have right now that, you know, you could aspire to be. And so, as I said, when I was in the sixth grade, um, then I was a softball player. Uh, Love softball, first base person. But I didn't really appreciate that people would come in the first base and dive in and hit me. And so, again, I was a scrapper back then. And then basketball was in the next sport. So um, really good at basketball as well. But, you know, as soon as I had a bad foul, then I'm fighting on the court. So my dad was like, "Uh -uh, just get you out of basketball. So Uh finally, sixth grade, I beat all the boys. And so we thought, okay, that's where she might want to be. And then we moved from Germany back to the States, started Fort Knox High School. That's when I had uh, Ms. Tesler, my coach. She said, "Uh, I don't have a hurdler. You want to run and you're fast. And so she said, go run the hurdles. And that's how Mm -hmm. I then uh, Mm -hmm. became a a hurdler is Mm -hmm. my high school coach. Didn't have anybody else to run hurdles. And so uh, that's how I got stuck there. I was fast mm. enough, and that's how I ended up becoming a hurdler. Wow! And you loved it. And then I loved, yeah. And then I loved it. And then I, I just happened to be good at it, and uh, went on to win state championships in Kentucky, and really was a natural um, athlete. And so by the time, you know, I didn't really train hard. I had a wonderful high school coach, Miss um, Dawson, who. Basically, let me do what I wanted to do. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she I didn't train really hard. And it wasn't until I got to college where I ended up with an Olympic coach um, who was a hurdler mm-hmm. that I uh, understood um, the real meaning of what it took to be an Olympian, what kind of work and hard work and perseverance and the time that you have to put into really wanting to be an Olympic athlete. It really wasn't until I came to college that I understood what it would actually take to mm-hmm. be a world-class and to be a, a top-notch hurdler. And then the wonderful thing is building up all those attributes that then you take into your professional life afterwards mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. has really been a blessing. Yeah. But you you got the sense that being an Olympic athlete was achievable. And, 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 and then you know, comes the work. Is that what happens? You're, you, you know, you decide like, I want, I actually really want that. Yes. And, and, and my aspirations started, you know, again, I was in sixth grade in Germany, beat the boys running. And then that was also um, the uh, Olympics were in Munich that year. And we had just left, you know, we were there in Germany and then we left right before the Olympics started and being able to see, even though, you know, those were, we had a lot of tragedy at the, at the Munich Olympics, but then really seeing, um, you know, Black women running and being successful, that's when I knew that, okay, I want to be an Olympian. And then I got the, the chance to move to a, a city in an army installation that had, you know, the number one girls track team um, in the state. So it was just all of those things sort of came together. The the stars mm-hmm. all lined up. And um, that first year, I happened to be successful. So that became one of those aspirational things that I wanted to do. So we had to, now you had to get a, get a scholarship, you know, win state mm-hmm. championships. Now you got to get a scholarship to college. Um, and then from there, 
Mamie really instilled that work ethic in me that was needed. Um, and she would always taunt me to say, if you really want to be an Olympian, you know, running like you're running right now or training like you're training right now or not having that grit and not going the extra mile is not going to is not going to help you. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, my the funniest story that I always tell to young athletes, college athletes, is I got to Ohio State. I'm on a four year scholarship, one of the first women to receive a scholarship in, in track and field. And um, I get this Olympic. I was I got my scholarship before the coach actually was hired. And so now I have this Olympic athlete who is um, she comes from the Tennessee Tiger Bell culture. And um, and so she's bringing that to the table. And so I'm a sprinter, so I don't run any longer than 200 meters. Right, Brett. And so. We uh, she calls practice and uh, the in in September when we get to school, and she says everybody runs cross country and I was like I, I don't I don't run cross country I, I'm a sprinter I I run 200 meters that that's it no if you want to keep your scholarship everybody runs cross country so I never forget that she used to put us in a van and at that time you know you, you look at the campus now but. She would take us all the way deep into Upper Arlington, put us in a band, drive us out to Upper Arlington, and then she'd say, meet me back at the, at the French Field House, right? <laughs> so the cross-country girls, right, the, the LDR, the long-distance girls, they knew how to get back, right? <laughs> but for those of us who weren't long-distance, we would, like, keep up maybe for about a mile, right? And yeah. then it was like, we're lost. So you have this small little group of black girls, right? Lost in Upper Arlington. Like, we don't know where we're at. Now, I'm from the South. I'm not from the North. So I'm worried about being up here with all these white people. They don't know who we are. We just, only thing we got to identify with us is Ohio State on, you know, our, on our sweats. And so we weren't getting back, you know, by that time it's getting dark late at night. So we might, not get back to the dorms until maybe like seven o'clock, right? Because we didn't walk most of the way and we threw up Arlington and got home. So by the time we get home, the cafeterias are closed, right? Cafeterias are closed. Um, you know, I'm a little poor black girl, or army girl from, you know, coming up here. So I don't have, you know, and by that time we didn't have debit cards. So I don't have a lot of disposable income that I can just, you know, my, my parents gave me a hundred dollars a month and that was it. Believe it or not, that's what I had to mm-hmm. lift off of from them. So now I got to take my money and I got to go get something to eat at dinner because I've missed dinner for about, probably this went on for about a month. Then as soon as you get finished with um, coming in and get dressed, then you it's mandatory. You got to be in study table. So now you got to go to study table until 10 o'clock at night because all athletes are required to go to study table. So I haven't eaten. I'm tired. I'm getting lost. So probably after about four weeks, I called my dad and I said, hey, dad, you know, and I did this whole drama because I'm really dramatic. Um, a lot of people know me. I'm drama. So I went through this whole drama thing. I called him on the phone. I said, I hate this coach. I hate this woman. I hate this school. I said, I'm ready to come home and I'm just bawling and I have all these tears. And so all of a sudden I realized that he is not saying anything. And so I'm like, okay. Um, and he finally said, are you finished? And I said, yes, sir. 
Um, mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I heard click. <laughs> that was it. That was it. Uh-huh. That was it. And so that was that was when I had to make up my mind because you know it wasn't like I had a bunch of money. Like I'm gonna get on the bus, or I got a car. Yeah. I'm gonna drive home, and if I right. didn't get home, what what is he gonna do to me? So right. I had to make up my mind at that time. Um, what I was going to do because I didn't have options like these, you know, yeah. I always say to my friends now, their kids go to school or the grandkids go to school and they're like, oh, so-and-so, he didn't like it there. So we let him come home. Uh-uh, that's not wasn't an option for me. It was, yeah. you got to make it work. Yeah. And so that was then the beginning of me developing that relationship with my coach uh-huh. and really making up my mind that I was going to do the work that yeah. was going to be necessary for me to be successful in college, but also to be successful on the track. Yeah. And, and I want to circle back around to, you know, the learnings that we get from athletics. Um, but, but I want to ask you first, tell me what it was like to be in college at that time from a civil rights standpoint, like what's going on in the world then and how, are you starting to kind of um, be with that? You know, I have a, a son that's a freshman in college and a senior in high school that, you know, have kind of um, really gotten pretty awake and, and activated over the last, you know, couple of years. That's mm-hmm. kind of a time where, you know, you, you start to do that anyway. But, you know, with what's going on in the world now, it's, it's heightened. And I'm curious what it was like for you when you're in college, you know, aside from the athletics, you know, what, what are you studying? Where are your interests socially? You know, kind of what else is going on in your world, you know, outside of sports? Yeah. So, you know, again, you always have these inflection points that remind you that you're Black. As you know, I think if you go talk to a lot of Black people and where you really have an understanding of, of racism in, 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 in this country and how prevalent it is, and, and, you know, I know there's this big con- controversy right now about, you know, is this country a racist country? But, you know, when you talk to more people, there's always points that show you that there's a lot of racism that exists in the country. So case in point, I move into my dorm my freshman year. Right. And so I live in the, what's now the, the, the towers over there, the two towers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those were new at the time. And so. In those tower, there's pods and there's suites, and there are four different pods with two beds in each of the bathrooms. You know, you share, you know, the, mm-hmm. you share a bathroom. And so, two of when I got into the pod, I had a I had a a, a white uh, girl who was my roommate in our room, and then um, was there two people that were there were four people in those in those. And mm-hmm. so then there was in the other pod, there was some, there were other, everybody, everybody was white in the pod except for me. I was the only black mm-hmm. girl. Mm-hmm. So within, um, within three days of me, of, of us coming in as freshmen, two of those girls moved out and they moved out because they didn't want to be in the room with them. One of them didn't want to be there with me. The other one, her parents said she couldn't be in there with a black person. So. So, you know, again, that's one of those reflection points where, ah, you know, racism exists. The things that, you know, you hear your parents talking about, now we're actually experiencing, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah, there was no social media. There was, you know, 
You couldn't go on Facebook. You know, I know a lot of parents do that kind of stuff now, mm-hmm. you know, look at somebody's Facebook page to see if they want to, you know, I don't want my kid rooming with that kid because they maybe drank too much or anything. No, this mm-hmm. was because I was black. Mm-hmm. And so they moved And was that like a, um, was that like a just thing that you kind of had gotten used to? Cause you'd kind of grown up, you know, being told, you know, you can't sit here and hear in the N word or, are you still kind of at that point where, you know, you're you're scrapping because because people are are you know uh, discriminating against you? You know, I, I will say this, Brett. It was one of those. It was normalized, but now I'm feeling a, I'm feeling some kind of way about it now. Right now, mm-hmm. I'm becoming I'm becoming a little angry about it now. I, I'm 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 feel as a as a young adult, I'm not having an appreciation for. Why is this now continuing? And then you have to look at back then. Um, that was when I remember Roots came out. Mm-hmm. So that created a whole nother awakening on, you know, I mean, across the country, you know, at the mm-hmm, time. I don't mm-hmm. know. Again, for all of mm-hmm, y'all are listening, mm-hmm. go Google mm-hmm. Roots. And so that was your first black, like 12 years of slave that yeah, came out. Yeah. But yeah. but but a lot more intense. But just yeah. at, at that time, real intense because black people didn't see other black people from slavery through civil rights movement, uh, from Jim Crow to the civil rights movement, and 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 for a lot of us, you know, it, it was heartbreaking, you know, and mm-hmm. and so and so now you have you you have young black people who are angry on a campus with with young white folks who are now being blamed for or, or seen differently. I mean, it really is. And at that time, what they didn't do that, you know, a lot of the, the college campuses are doing now, they didn't provide forums where you could have critical conversations, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, because nobody kind of knew what to do with it, Ben. I mean, this was like, oh, shoot, this is the first time, you know, Alex Haley puts this, this you know, this whatever it was, eight-part series out here. You know, we're glued to the TV every week. And so now now I'm getting kind of ang- now I'm angry. You know, mm-hmm. now, now now I'm angry a, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm internalizing stuff that is going on. You know, now I'm it's it's now having a toll on me as a young athlete, you know, at uh, at Ohio State and and one that's successful. Mm-hmm. You know, now I have you know, we have incidences on a bus. You know, we're going to a track meet and one of our one of our teammates decides that she's going to use the N word on the bus. And, you know, now one of my teammates is now fighting her. You know, now mm-hmm. we got now 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 we got a racial divide on our on our team. We got we got the white girl sitting in the front of the bus. We got the black girl sitting in the back of the bus and we want to be in the back of the bus. So this is you can't come in the back of the bus. This is one time we wanted to be in the back of the bus. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah. And, you know, the bathroom's in the back of the bus. And so now, and I'm yeah. really, this is real talk. Now right. we're thinking like, don't come back here to use the bathroom because y'all can't come in the back of the bus. So you have to sit there and hold it because now yeah. it's going to be a, it's going to be an issue. So, yeah, I think during my college years, as I began to continue to experience racism, I did become uh, 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 angry. Yeah. And, and then as I became an international athlete with mm-hmm. with through track and field, it gave me another opportunity to travel abroad quite a bit, Brett. 
And so that is where I was able to balance out that anger. Mm. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. Because I was actually wondering, you know, what influence it had on you being somebody that, you know, lived in Germany and, and grew up worldly to begin with. I mean, you know, how, how did that kind of, it's, it's a pretty incredible opportunity that you had to be able to be exposed to cultures, you know, that, that were so foreign. Most people don't get that. You know, you, you, you kind of almost normalize the sense of traveling abroad, of other culture. So, so, so now you're actually doing it as an international athlete. You know, tell me about how that does start to influence you. Well, it, 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 influences you. it influences you greatly. But, but what it also did is it really exposed to me the racism and arrogance that, that is in this country. So mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those things like I, I was always conflicted. You know, you go to an Eastern Bloc country, which at the time you go to a Russia or you go to an East Germany, right? And you see the oppression that communism, or you go to you go to China and you see the the oppression of the Chinese people or the governments, what they do in those in those in those countries. So you're ready as an American, you're ready to I'm going to get the heck out of here, right? But then you also then go to countries where, as an American, how arrogant we are that we automatically think that as Americans that we're gonna we're supposed to come over to you know, um, Africa or Germany or Italy, and that because we're Americans, there's a privilege that we're supposed to have and that we're not supposed to adapt to their culture, right? So when I go to a Muslim country, I'm going to be respectful and I'm going to cover myself up. Where I have my white athlete colleagues who are saying, I'm not going to, and I'm going to wear shorts as a woman because I'm white. No, you don't do that. You're being disrespectful. And, you know, even with the Olympics, with the um, Olympic Committee, they had to literally start, and, and they do this before every Olympic Games, they make everybody go through an orientation. Because believe it or not, we think that all of our athletes have traveled abroad, and nine times out of 10, they may not have traveled abroad, right? And so they go through a whole cultural, we have to have like a cultural training, which would now be like a DEI training before you go into certain countries. And we have to do, we had to do this thing individually in track and field to really tell our and teach our children and our young people, here's the do's and don'ts when you go into certain countries. You don't do this. Like you don't bring pornography, you know, books and in, 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 into certain countries because that is offensive, you know, to to them. You 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 might get off of a of an airplane and there's gonna be somebody with you know AK 47s that's you know directing you. So please don't do XYZ. So even the United States Olympic Committee, because we have so many people, and it is part of that arrogance, that that American privilege and arrogance, you know, it is it, it's it's prevalent. So it was one of those things where I got to see the other cultures, you know, don't go, go, don't go to, you know, Japan or China and, and, and do certain things because their cultural doesn't allow you to do it. But, but we had our white counterparts doing it anyway. So then when you come home, 
then you have a better appreciation for that privilege, that white privilege, because it's not even just about black people. They don't care about anybody else's culture is what I learned. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's Mm -hmm. been a real experience watching. And and when I say to my white friends and white colleagues about, about their white privilege, I use these kinds of examples so that they understand that 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 as it's really about us as Americans, we think sometimes we're better than. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I and, and we have to figure out how do we teach our children to be respectful when you do travel abroad, when you go to other cultures, that you don't you know go over to Africa and that you don't understand their healthcare system or why they don't have healthcare systems, and you take a whole bunch of drugs and you take a whole bunch of stuff there. And you give it to them and then you wonder why these people are still sick or why, you know, it has a negative effect because that's not a part of their culture. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, mm-hmm. you don't go to an Islamic country and sit at the breakfast table and say, I want some bacon. That's disrespectful. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, you know, yeah. It's just little stuff like that. Right. That we, 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 so it's it's an American thing that I've learned. So I've, I've always mm-hmm. been one of those. I was always glad to come home because of the privileges that we have here. And I understand why so many people want to immigrate, you know, why immigrants want to come to this country. But then after you get here, there's still oppression, but it's a different kind of oppression. If Mm -hmm. you are not, if if you are a person of color, I'll just say Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. You know, I'm, I, I was wondering if maybe like the fact that you felt that there was this arrogance, this kind of, entitlement of being American and that it wasn't as focused on um, just black people. It was, you know, spread to other cultures too. It was that, was that better or worse? I mean, you know, it's like maybe, okay, it's not just me, but shit, it's everybody. I mean, you know, I, 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 it sounds like it's, it's worse, uh, but I don't know what, how did you feel? (laughs) You know, it's it's it is it's like one of those double-edged swords, Brett. Like, yeah, yeah it's it's and and so so then you begin to sort of internalize and say, okay, it's not just being black. It, when, mm-hmm. But but it is when we get over here, it is a it is a black and brown issue. But yeah, that you know that 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 arrogance. Um, you know, I mean, I've I've been watching the news lately, and and there's always tragedies that happen, and you know, they've been covering. The issue of the two, you know, young white boys who killed that um, Italian policeman, mm-hmm. and I guess they got life in prison now, over there now. And I was listening to one of the parents basically saying that I don't understand why they he or got you know that they got that harsh of a sentence. See, right there, that is mm. that that's that privilege that we're talking right. about. Right, you I killed gotcha. somebody's husband, father, son. Your yeah. and it was dealing with drugs, and it doesn't matter if it was their first of. You killed somebody. You stabbed somebody eleven times, mm-hmm. and 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 left the family. How how do you you know? I I don't know how you justify. And I know it's as a parent, and it's out of love. Sure. And, and those prisons are a lot harsher than you know ours are over here because you know, yeah. but. But it's that that's that arrogance that I'm talking about, that you yeah. think that that your son should have a lighter sentence. Um, gotcha. OK, uh, l- l- let me ask you kind of switching gears for a little bit, because I want to just put a bow on the kind of Olympic part. 
Um, what was it like to be, you know, an Olympic athlete? I know you've set world records, you know, what was that as like, um, kind of amazing as it sounds. I mean, I, I hold like Olympic athletes up in like really rare air and, and you had success at a, at the highest level. Um, what, what was that like actually doing it? I mean, did you get a sense that this was really special? I mean, was it everything you kind of wanted it to be or was it just your experience and, and was that normalized at all? So I'll say this, and you know, at a full disclosure, I tell everybody, you know, I made the 1980 Olympic team and we boycotted. And so I didn't get to compete in Moscow. And then in 84, I was, um, you know, the alternate and again, didn't really have the the opportunity to compete. But I did, you know, I, I have been a world championship. I have set American and world records. Um, uh, and 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 so to be um, in that class and to be considered an Olympian, um, it is a privilege, uh, but it's a it's a privilege that those of us who do have that Ali behind our names, that people earned it. And there, there is that group of us, um, and there's not a large group of people that do call themselves an Olympian. Um, but there's also, you know, people have different levels of, of their Olympic greatness, right? And so, you know, I, I, I would never put myself in the same category as a Jackie Joyner Kersey who, you know, mm-hmm. with all of her medals or even, you know, a Usain Bolt. Um, but we are we are all still in the same family. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's um, what what the, the, the way we got there, our journeys have all been different. But there's a respect there that, you know, depending upon the level of success you had that we all had a similar journey, that we had a dream, um, that we had goals and objectives uh, that we wanted to reach, um, and that we competed at a level to get to that point. And, you know, it, for me, I look back on it now, even though I'm, you know, I'm I'm an old girl, you know, I'm I'm considered an OG. um, And a lot of the kids that I go and I go and watch now, if I'm, you know, at, um, when I'm going to the trials in a couple of weeks, you know, I have some somebody has to remind, do you know who that is? Right. So uh-huh. I don't I don't get caught up in that anymore. You know, I used yeah. to when I was about 10 years out, I was like, what do you mean you don't know who I am <laughs> now? You know, now I don't I don't I don't get offended by that. I tell yeah. other people don't get offended by that yeah. um, if they don't because that's just who our kids are now. But yeah. But what it, was it, it like in 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 80 to to boycott? I mean, how how did you feel about that? Oh, it was devastating. It was, it yeah. was, you know, working for four years and uh, because of, you know, a conflict with Russia and Afghanistan, you know, we mm-hmm. don't get to compete. Um, uh, it, it was devastating. Um, but I was still young enough at the time, Brett, where I knew, okay, I got, I was, I had planned on, yeah. I had planned on going for another four years anyway. Yeah. Um, and just being one of those poor Olympic athletes who had, you know, limited um, shoe endorsements. It's just so funny. <laughs> Um, old friend had an old file of mine the other day, and I looked and I I saw my first Adidas contract that I that yeah. I had. And yeah. when I see how much it was now, like I don't know, I don't know how I lived up <laughs> off of that, right? And and uh-huh. I gave it to my son who's thirty to look at, it, and he was like, "Oh my God, Mom, you yeah. what, they did contracts like this back, but yeah, yeah. But, you know, it was yeah, you know, but but um, and con- consider now, I mean." 
a gold a gold medal bonus for me then was only twenty five thousand dollars. Right uh-huh. now they're making millions for an Olympic gold, you know. But that yeah. was what my little Adidas bonus was, you know, at, yeah. at the time. Uh, Stephanie, tell me, tell me then, you know, we talked a little bit about kind of what you learn through sport, hard work, right? You know, what you have to kind of really do, um, even the story about cross country and kind of, you know, having to, to, to really, you know, I don't know, make a relationship with your coach. You know, tell me what happens after sports for you, after the Olympics, you know, kind of where do you go with your career from there? Well, Brett, luckily for me, I did graduate from college. And, you mm-hmm. know, there we have a lot of athletes sometimes who move on to professional careers and they do they don't graduate. And then if those professional careers don't pan out, then um, they're usually um, not in a good place. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I had a degree and, um, uh, you know, again, back then there wasn't there was professional track, but it, it wasn't at the level. Um, that it is now where you could actually sustain a full-time, you know, you consider it um, a full-time job and, and, and um, uh, have, you know, con- you know, real endorsements um, that where you could live off of and, and live, you know, a, a really good life. So, you know, I knew that I had to get out and, um, you know, start looking for a job. And uh, this was one time where you do use, you know, your Ohio State connections and the people that, you know, being an athlete. And I will say, and especially for women and especially for for girls and women now, um, you know, a lot of corporations are looking for female athletes because they know the attributes. If they were competing at a high level um, in college, they know that they're going to bring a strong work ethic to the table. They know that from an integrity standpoint, you know, you got to be doing what you're saying you're going to do. They're going to be organized and they're going to be you know, understand metrics and setting goals and, and what those measurable outcomes need to be in order for you to, you know, for you to, to get to be successful. I mean, I knew I had to run a certain time from the first hurdle to the second. I mean, from the, the, the starting block to the first hurdle, what are that measurable outcome? So those metrics. So you already have that stuff already there. It's now how do you now take those same attributes and then transition them into a professional life? How do you take all those things that you've learned, um, your teamwork, you know, how do you, how do you come together, you know, in a team internally? And, and if you want to be a leader, how do you take those skills from if you were the captain of the football team or basketball team, bringing the team together so that they can be successful? It's now bringing all those, 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 those skills and attributes. And how do you now translate those into business? And so, um, at first, I really didn't. It took me a while to figure it out. But having, you know, good mentors around me, um, um, you know, one of the first jobs uh, after I left the um, after I had a, a stint at the state was going to work with Greg Lasheka, who, you know, was an OSU football player. And so, you know, he understood how my brain worked. I kind of understand from an athlete's brain work. So it mm-hmm. makes for a really good relationship, but it's also a good mentoring opportunity. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I used to hate it because Greg used to always hand us books all the time as cabinet members did a lot of and made you do a lot of reading. But mm-hmm. again, you know, that's like taking that playbook. You gotta know that playbook, right? And that mm-hmm. football. So so how do you how do you how do you translate those kinds of things 
um, like that. It's it, it, it's 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 probably not as easy as you think. My some of my challenges have been, and, and I remember when I was on the school board, one of my school board colleagues told me this. They said, you know, Stephanie, your you've always your your standard of excellence is up here, right? And 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 many of us, our standard of excellence is probably about three levels lower than yours because mm-hmm. we haven't achieved that same level of excellence that you have. Mm-hmm. And so you got to give us a little grace we to get there because you're 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 operating at a different achievement level than most of us would have ever obtained. You're an Olympian. Mm-hmm. And I had to go back one night and I had to think about that. Um mm-hmm. that yeah, I, I, I'm always going for I'm always going for 10. I got to stay at 10. But a lot of people can't stay at 10. Yeah. Uh, and, and I have to be able to respect that. But I've also grown and I hope I've grown in my leadership and being here at the Urban League is I got to help you get to 10. Let me show yeah. you how I can get you to 10, because I'm a firm believer that we all can get to 10. Now, the question is whether or not you want to do the work to get to 10. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the work that you're doing now. And, you know, that that's an interesting thing, you know, when you talk about leadership, right? I mean, you, you know, I could imagine, and, and I think I've gone through this too, as a, as a leader in my company, in my work, where you want to, uh, and I'm far from, you know, an Olympic athlete, but I have a drive that has me wanting to do things at a high level. And that often has me at 10. And it was a challenge for me to, um, you know, kind of learn how to work with people that didn't think like that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because you have expectations and you want things to be done on uh, fast and quick and, and done well and right. And it's, and, you know, oh, well, that didn't really work like that. And, you know, I can't like, you know, quit on everybody. I got to figure out how to get people to 10 or get them like closer to 10. And, right. and, and, and so I'm kind of curious, you know, um, on a number of levels, you know, you're, I think uh, you're, you're somebody that's a, a very important leader in the community here in Columbus. And I know that you're still, you know, active in, in the Olympic, you know, committee. And, and so really, you know, you're leading um, people around the world. Uh, tell me a little bit about like w- what it's like to lead today when you know that you know you know we we just you know we're on a committee together and we just saw this study that says you know at this rate it's 95 years or something right like what is it like to lead knowing that this isn't a quick fix this isn't something that you can do overnight as fast as you would like it to happen people don't understand people are like way behind, you know, everyone's learning. I mean, not everybody, but a lot of people are learning, but they're starting from a place that's, you know, pretty far back. You know, tell me about what it's like for you to lead today. I was uh, given an award um, uh, last week from the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and um, week before last. And I was really thinking through Brett, you know, what I was going to talk about when, uh, and you know, I, I I'm a firm believer now that I'm 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 not gonna say I'm a deeply deeply spiritual person. My mother would have liked for me to be able to say that because even at sixty something years old, she was calling me to ask me, "Did I go to church today?" 
Um, uh, she did. She come every Sunday. So she died. Did she go to church this week? Um, because I was there, right? But, but I believe that God does have a purpose for you, and you don't know what that purpose is going to be. And so, in two in in 1984, when I had been picked to win the gold medal, I hadn't lost a race all year. Um, uh, you know, I was just pulling out again to smile, you know, to show my son that, oh, your mom was, um, in Sports Illustrated, believe it or not, you would have never thought that like LeBron James, your mommy was there too, right? Before you were born, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they don't believe until you have to show them proof. Like you yeah. are really a great day. I have to show you film and that kind of thing. Uh, right? but your mom yeah, yeah especially because they all probably want to talk about uncle Paul. Exactly. <laughs> that too. Yeah. But he, he, you know, he, he didn't like to acknowledge that. Um, but anyway. But if, if, if that hadn't have happened to me, I, I wouldn't be right here right now um, yeah. in this space, having the privilege of, of leading an organization that is about social justice and economic empowerment. And, you know, this is a passion, Brett. And so I know that this that 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 I have been selected by my higher, higher power to be here right now to do this work. And because of the, my personality and who I am, um, that you know, I am going to be not only passionate about it, and I know it gets me in trouble a lot of times because of the passion, but that same passion that I had to be an Olympic athlete and to be a world championship is the same passion now that I drive in this work here at um, the Columbus Servant League. And, and, and so I wake up every day now knowing that we do have this long road ahead of us, but I've been put here for a reason and I cannot, you know, what I'm not going to do is, is, is I'm not going to diminish the, this work and the reason why I need to be here. So I, I need to be at a hundred percent. I need to be at 10. And so now I tell people when you walk in the door, or if you want, you know, when I talk to my employees, you know, every two weeks for our all staff meetings, I tell them that the expectation is, that I'm getting everybody to 10. Whether you like it or not, I'm a, I'm a, you're going, I'm going to help you stretch. And if you don't want to stretch, then this is probably not the best place for you. But we have a responsibility. You know, all of my folks, I was able to, by the grace of God, I, I was able to keep everybody in their jobs so I didn't have to lay anybody off. And so, and, and because of that, we were all blessed when we saw people coming in these doors who lost their jobs, who couldn't pay their mortgages, who couldn't pay their rent, who didn't have jobs, who justice-involved people were getting let out of prisons and they didn't have anywhere to go and they couldn't have, didn't have an ID and they didn't have food, or families that are in the food lines who have never, Black and white people, who have never had to ask for any kind of assistance or help before. And now they're telling us that jobs probably won't come back until 2024 and I say to people all the time, just because, you know, the Biden administration gave out those stimulus checks, trust me, poor black people and people of color, you know, that paid off bill from four years ago. That $1,400 was gone already because they're so far behind in their bills or in, in, in rent that, you know, there's, that's not going to be enough to, for, for them to catch up. And so, you know, we, I tell everybody, you have to unpack your stuff at the door before you start work here. Because we got people that come in these doors and people we talk to every day who are 10 times worse off than we could ever be. And so Mm -hmm. it's a blessing to be able to come in here and do this work. 
And that's why I don't take it lightly. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm lucky that I get to have meetings now more so than ever before with folks like you and the other committee members that were on so that we can have real conversations about what's going on out here. Because this, mm-hmm. it's not no joke out here. And, and yeah. COVID has just exacerbated it mm-hmm. even more. But we already knew this was going on. But now, yeah. now there's more people who have an appreciation. And we always talk about my, you know, I am my brother's keeper where we really have to be. Yeah. Um, you know, I was saying to the chamber in a speech a couple of weeks ago, you know, that the American the American American economy could gain two point one trillion in gross GDP if we figured out how to have better racial equity in this country. That yeah. means everybody gets some. How do we, I know. How do we figure yeah. that out? Yeah. Yeah, you know, th- this is a this is an interesting thing, you know, and I've had this conversation, you know, with Alex and others, you know, at the, the partnership, um, you know, that that um, I kind of witnessed it um, with the LGBTQ com- uh, community, maybe I don't know in the eighties or, or nineties here in Columbus, where we became known as a um, maybe maybe the most you know per capita gay people in the country outside of Columbus. Well, what what did that do? That drove the arts, it drove culture, it drove um, you know, vibrancy in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. It drove economic development. Yeah. Right? Um, but the short north wouldn't be anything if it weren't for that. And so, you know, you try to kind of appeal to people like in any way you can, you know? And what you just said is like Hey, by the way, um, maybe you like economic development. You know that that would that maybe that'll get you right. Yeah. Um, but it's just true. You know, one thing I wanted to just ask you because you know you've you've also dedicated a good portion of your um, career to education, and you know I was just listening to you and thinking about kind of the scrappiness that you know you spoke to that you know you used to fight. Um, you know, when you were pissed, you know, somebody did you wrong, you'd fight. And I think, you know, our education system, in fact, yesterday I was told that Stanford now has a program for kids that are on the spectrum hmm. that they, they've, they've got, um, and I don't know if they're high school or college age kids, but they've got these kids that are on the spectrum in there, like doing coding and like um, trying to solve like big massive problems because their brains work in a way that like is so far outside the box they can actually unlock some pretty unique stuff and and I think you know our educational system when when somebody's on the spectrum or somebody is a fighter they're angry you know they're 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 often kind of outcast mm-hmm. and and you know what I heard you say is that that same like learning to fight, to be scrappy, to stand, to tell people like, don't come in here if you're not 100%. You know, you, you had to learn how to channel that, you know, productively as an adult, but it's the same thing that has you fighting today for important stuff and getting results. And, and I think, you know, as educationally, we need to figure out how to honor that more, right? It's the same thing as, you know, what you said about, you know, the, 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 the GDP, like we're not, we're too stuck in like what we think works mm-hmm. when there's this whole other world out there that has a lot of value that we're, we're casting, you know, outside. 
No, I, I agree with you 100%. I, I will say this, Brett, you know, this, my scrappiness <clears throat> has probably um, hindered me in some, you know, professional areas because I was too scrappy. And, and I, and I recognize that now. And I, especially I talk to, when I talk to young, both black women and white women, you know, I still let them know that there's a double standard for women, that men that are scrappy don't get the same rap as a woman who who is scrappy, right? And so how do you make sure that you don't become, a, you know, a Stephanie Hightower that some opportunities were probably not afforded to her because she was too scrappy? Um, but now, but it's, it's hard for me to keep saying that because now I have all these women say, what, but look where you're at right now. So, you know, but but I don't want you to have to take that long to get there. I need, like you said, when you're young, I need you to be able to have that opportunity while you're still young and fresh um, so that there's long longevity to it. Um, you know, I, I think that we, the one thing that I will say this is we have to find outside entities like nonprofit organizations like the Urban League and the Y and, and others who bring the kind of opportunities you're talking about, educational opportunities to young people. Because unfortunately, our school systems and the way they're set up and the mandates that they have that are, are posed on them, it doesn't, unless you're in, like I'm sure your kids look like mine did, you know, and why I put mine in a private school on a parochial school, the public schools don't have the same kind of flexibility to be able to give those kids who might be scrappy, who might have a different way of learning, it doesn't give them that opportunity to thrive and to shine. And we've got to figure out where can we, those kids, where can we put them so that they can maintain and be their authentic selves and be successful? Because mm -hmm. um, our public system, uh, unfortunately, Brett, it, it just doesn't allow. And, and if you don't have the money or the resources to put your kid in a place where they can thrive, then you get stuck. And then, you know, we end up having what we have um, in the public system right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Stephanie, as we kind of start to wrap up, um, I, I'm curious, what would you, or what do you tell people that want to try to be a part of change and aren't really sure exactly what to do or, you know, kind of, you know, how to make a difference. You know, what, what do you tell people uh, about, you know, kind of how we need to come together and start to work to make a difference, the difference we, that, that many people want to see happen, but they're not doing anything for whatever reason. Maybe they don't know where to start or how to do it. Yeah. You know, I, um, I was with a group of, of uh, JP Morgan Tra Chase leaders last week and <clears throat> They ask me the same thing. And so I'll say for like employers and especially small and medium-sized business employers, if, if, you, if you have uh, people of color in your organizations, you need to create opportunities and spaces for them to be their authentic selves. And what I mean by that is so that they don't have to feel like they have to come to work and they have to code switch. You know, I'm, a, mm -hmm. I'm really bad on TikTok. Brett, I'm really, really bad. I, I, I can sit for like <laughs> two or three hours on TikTok. Oh my gosh. One of my entertainment. And there's this TikTok piece on there now 
that has this black woman who she comes in the door and she's like, hey, what's up, so-and-so? And then her Latina brother, she's like, she's screaming. And then she gets to the water cooler, right? And she immediately cold switches with her white colleague. And she's like, oh, good morning. How are you today? Did you have fun at this weekend that you're whatever? And her whole demeanor and her whole voice changed and whatever. And mm-hmm. so it was like the authentic, it was something about the authentic code switching. So how yeah. do how do how do leaders in their companies, how do you begin to have that conversation about the need uh, for your employees? I don't care if it's two, I don't care if it's 10, that mm-hmm. they can come to work and be their authentic selves and not be penalized for it. And do you create, do you create avenues or forums or conversational areas to have that kind of dialogue? I think mm-hmm. that's really, really important. Because yeah. then what it does is it gives you an opportunity in those employees or people who don't know where to start. It gives you an opportunity to learn a little bit more about that person or maybe their experience so that when you do go out and maybe want to try to do something, you have a different mindset or thought process about maybe why you why you want to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, come to organizations like the Urban League and other organizations that are mission led by black people or deal with black kids and black families and come and come and do some volunteering, real volunteering. And this is not to knock anybody who's been working. But, you know, when you go once a year and go and serve chicken or dinner for Thanksgiving, it's a little bit different if you come and do that and go sit down at that tables and you have dinner with those people and have mm-hmm. a real conversation with them. Mm-hmm, Not just mm-hmm. I'm standing behind the table and I'm passing you out the food and I'm right. having I'm a casual volunteering. Look at me. Yeah. Checkbox. Yeah. 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 Post yeah. it on Instagram. Yeah. Exactly. Get in there and do the work and really get to know somebody Absolutely. that's in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Come down yeah. to a, a shelter and really stay. I'm not staying, stay the night, but Work with them in the shelter like the people do to, you know, as their as intake. So you'll mm-hmm. know what that person's challenge have been. If they've been somebody that's been, you know, part of domestic violence or if they mm-hmm. get there, you know, if they've just got evicted and they got a, clo- a, a car full of clothes or if their kids are, you know, they've been sleeping in a car for, you know, a two or three months and you have a real conversation with them and you got to get them, you know, navigate the system. Do that a couple of times. You know, I think you will have, and then just, just you know, and I tell my jokingly, my, some of my friends, just go find you a real black friend, right? Just to have a real <laughs> talk with them. You know, mm-hmm. we have this group called the Edge Sisters now. Mm-hmm. We have real conversations. Yeah. That, yeah. You know, and, and these are conservative women. These are CEO women. Yeah. Um, and they've had black colleagues and they've had, you know, I would say, you know, they've had black friends, but not friend friends, like sister mm-hmm. girl friends. Mm-hmm. So I could, that we can have real conversations. And um, and I also get to learn, too, because I learn sure. about some of their I'm not going to say their privilege, but why sometimes white people think. But I've always because I, you know, I jokingly say I've had two white husbands, so mm-hmm. I come from a different vantage point. Um. <laughs> oh, that's great, Stephanie! Thank you for taking the time to do this and sharing your story. And we'll make sure people know in the show notes where to find you and the the Urban League and um, any other kind of final thoughts you want to leave for the audience. Now, just um, I want to thank you, uh, all seriousness, for 
your willingness to be vulnerable and to be a part of the work that we're doing in this DNI space, because you are becoming one of those leaders in that space. And so just want to say publicly to you, thank you for um, being your authentic self and being vulnerable to put yourself um, in a position so that you can help to change this community. So thank you. Well, that means a lot, you know, coming from you, as you know, as I just expressed in the last um, committee meeting, sometimes I just don't feel like I'm even qualified, but I'm staying in the room. I want to be there. And then, you know, the the authentic self piece, you know, I, um, I've kind of started to just um, try to uh, tackle the issue in my own way too. Um, and I had been doing this long before, you know, the, the, the last year and a year and a half or whatever, you know, but I've, I've been investing in uh, minority entrepreneurs because I think that's something I, I do know how to do. You know, we talked about this, you know, and, and so I think, you know, I, I say that because there's all kinds of ways to um, lean in. And if there's a way where you're more comfortable, you know, great. Right. <laughs> you know, we, we need to lean in in all kinds of ways, but I appreciate you saying that. And, um, you know, really I'm learning a lot. I'm learning a lot. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's from people like you. So it's, uh, great to have this time with you and look forward to a lot more. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I hope, I, right. didn't get you, I, hope I didn't get you in too much trouble today on your podcast. No, no such thing. Thanks, Stephanie. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman on Twitter at bkaufman125 and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.